Uh, my name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, like Peter said, uh, we are now in a sermon series in the book of Judges. And so if you don't know what this book is, if, if you're new this week or just don't know, haven't read this book before, it's a book in the Old Testament. So uh, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus uh, shows up on the stage. And it's after God has rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. And uh, maybe if you know the story of Moses, he rescues them through a, a bunch of plagues. He brings them through the Red Sea. He brings them to a mountain, gives them his law, uh, leads them uh, through a bunch of miraculous things like a cloud of fire and a, a pillar, or there a cloud and a pillar of fire, and gives them uh, manna, this, this kind of food, this bread that falls from heaven daily. And then he brings them to a land and he says, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you this land. It's yours. You just have to go in and take it. And that's where the book of Judges begins. And we actually see in this book that it doesn't go all too well for the nation of Israel, for God's people. And so our subheading for this series has been Hope for the Hopeless. And we're going to, as Peter was saying, throughout this series, we just have this week and next week left. Throughout this series, we have seen this downward spiral. We've seen things get worse and worse and worse. And the nation of Israel has become more and more hopeless. And we're going to see today actually not hope come from within our text. Our, our story is going to end very dark, and we have to look ahead in the story to see where this hope is actually coming from. This morning, we're going to be looking at Judges uh, 17 and 18, so we just have two more uh, sermons on the book of Judges, and today's uh, title is There Was No King, and this is a, a refrain that we see over and over again in these last five chapters of Judges. The author is writing this to say, hey, things are really bad, and here's the big reason is that uh, Israel's not worshiping God, and they don't have a king. And they are doing what's right in each other's, or in their own eyes, which is leading to lots and lots of problems. So here in our passage in uh, Judges 17, 18, we're going to read this in just a, a second, uh, the book of Judges takes a turn. It goes from there being a bunch of outside oppression, about a bunch of outside enemies, literal enemies and nations that are attacking God's people, to now in these last few chapters, the enemy is this cancer within, this, this sin that is within all of Israel. And we're going to see that they even end up attacking and hurting each other. These final two stories uh, that actually don't have any judges within them. So we've, we've, the, the spirals got so low, the situations got so bad that we don't even have judges. We don't even have these kind of rescue figures, these military captains that come in and rescue God's people. In these last two stories, this week, Israel is going to make its own gods, its own, its, its own idols, and worship them. And then next week, we're going to see Israel begin to destroy their own people. So just to be clear, as we go into this last section of Judges, just because the Bible describes a situation or describes something that, that actually happened doesn't mean that it's condoning it. So this week, we're going to see some really depressing, uh, sinful stuff. Next week, we're going to see even worse stuff that's going to make us want to throw up. But just because the Bible is describing that it actually happened does not mean that it is endorsing it or saying that it's not horrible or evil. And the way that the authors write this, it's supposed to show us that this is disgusting, this is evil, this is horrible. And there's no king in Israel, and everyone's not doing what is right according to God, but they're doing what is right in their own eyes. So just like a news reporter for the Star Tribune writing about some terrible crime that happens, just like that reporter is not endorsing it, just sharing what is happening, 
That's the same thing what is going on in the last part of Judges. So today, we're going to see lots of darkness. We're going to see lots of hopelessness, which is great. Jen Wilkin uh, writes in her uh, commentary, too, about the book of Judges. She says that this is actually a good thing. She says, it is often said that there is no good news without the bad news. And today we're going to look at lots and lots and lots of bad news. That the gospel cannot properly be valued until the extent of human depravity is understood. The final chapters of Judges should cause us to marvel anew that a deliverer was sent to those who chose self-rule and self-worship over the, king, over the kingship of the one true God. Sometimes in our culture and, and throughout human history, we've thought that all we need is just a little more education. If, if we can just teach more people about the, the way things work best, then our world would actually be really great. That's, that's our big problem. Not enough education. Or maybe it's we need a little more kindness. If people would just love each other a little bit more, smile more, speak more kindly, then our world would be fixed. Or maybe we need more healthy leadership, or we need just a little more understanding and tolerance with each other. But if that's the case, we have to ask, well, then why did Jesus even have to come? Why did Jesus have to die? Why wasn't the law enough? So when I'm talking about the law, I'm talking about, uh, so right before this, God saves his people, takes them to Mount Sinai, and gives them the law, gives them the Old Testament, the, the Ten Commandments, and the hundreds of laws surrounding that. So if that was enough, then why did Jesus have to come? Or why in the book of Judges are things going so horribly? So right now in our story, Israel does have God's law, and it's just a few generations, just a few decades after God's great rescue out of Egypt. So it should go something like this. If we were just reading this and we didn't know the whole story, we might say, okay, this is what's happened in the story so far. God's physical salvation out of slavery. So God rescued a, a, a nation, a group of people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt. And then they saw probably the, the greatest miracles, the greatest supernatural events that people have ever seen. The, the plagues crossing through uh, the, the Red Sea, like I said, the pillar of fire and the cloud, manna coming daily. These people saw some of the most miraculous supernatural things that God has ever done in history. And then he brings them to a land. And he says, I'm going to make you prosperous. I'm going to make you protected. You're going to live in this great piece of land. And here I'm also going to give you my law. I'm going to tell you how to best live with each other. And you would think with all these things, right? So, so a physical salvation, seeing unbelievable miracles that you would just have to say, God is doing this. He's real and, and, and he's speaking to us and he's leading us. And then he, he sets them up in paradise and then he gives them his law. You would think the story would say, and then they lived happily ever after, right? So if the problem is outside of us, if the problem is just really bad enemies, if the problem is all the other people in the world are evil except for Israel, then our story would end like this. Or judges would begin like this. And they lived happily ever after. And here's how they prospered. And here's all the accomplishments that they had. And it was all great. But that's not at all how the book of Judges goes. We don't see utopia. We don't see paradise. We don't see human flourishing. But instead, we see the utter depravity 
of humanity. We see throughout Judges that over and over and over again, the poison and evil within us, that's within our hearts, that's encircled around our DNA, or what the Bible calls sin, is a cancer that destroys. It's a slave master, and we're, we're hopeless to be freed from it by ourselves. So not only do we not see enemies from the outside attacking Israel in these last few passages, we see this, this cancer from within, that, that the sin within them needs to be dealt with because that is what is leading them to crumble. So like Peter was saying, so in Judges, we've seen this great downward spiral. The situation gets worse and worse and worse. The rescuers get worse and worse and worse. Even these heroes, these, these judges, throughout the book, we've seen them get more sinful, more bloodthirsty, more violent, more lustful, more selfish, more broken, more unfaithful. And now in today's passage, we don't even have a judge. We don't even have the, the nation of Israel crying out to God saying, we have sinned, help us. They don't even realize how bad it is. They don't even realize to call out to God and we don't have a rescuer here in this chapter. We have to look, like I said, later on in to the story. But not only do we not have a rescuer, what we're going to see is we're going to see God's people look almost indistinguishable from these surrounding pagan nations. They look just like the Canaanites, just like the Midianites, just like the Philistines who are surrounding them. They've forgotten their God, the God that rescued them, the God that saved them, the God that provided for them, the God that did all those four things at the top there today. And they barely even remember his name or how to worship him or how to be in a relationship with him or what pleases him. So today's sermon is lots of bad news. It's like seven-eighths bad news. It's, it's a big bummer after big bummer after evil and depressing, hopeless type stuff. And at the very end, we're going to get to some hope. So let's get to our passage. So today we're going to see this huge problem, this huge problem that comes up now. It's also in uh, next week's uh, passage as well. There was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We're going to see this phrase come up multiple times. And it makes me think of like the wild, wild west, right? Like people just do whatever they want. There's, there's kind of a law, but not really. And people just, who's ever powerful gets to shoot the other guy and take his horse or... Or, or whatever, like it's just, there, there's no law, there's just complete anarchy. And what we're going to see in today's passage, a, a big move from, like I said, outward sin towards inward sin, outward enemies towards the problem within. So we're going to read a lot, uh, a big parts of Judges 17 and 18, so you can follow along in your Bible, but it might be uh, most helpful to just follow along on the screen to keep up. All right, Judges uh, 17 and 18. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And the Lord said, I'm sorry, and the mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. 
And the man Micah made a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the story starts off with this random guy who steals like a bazillion dollars from his mother. And then he hears this, this, this uh, 1,100 pieces of silver is a ton of money. But then he hears his mom curse this thief. And then he goes, oh man, I, I don't want to get cursed, so let me go back to my mom and say, actually mom, I was the one that stole your fortune. And then she gets worried. She's like, oh no, I, I, when it was a nameless thief, I hated him. But now that I know it's my, my son, I don't want him to be cursed. So then she says, well, let's try to fix this problem by taking some of this money and you take it to a silversmith, make, make a, an idol, and then we're going to worship Yahweh. We're going to worship God, the Lord, by making this idol. So even if you don't know much of this story of the Bible already, you're probably thinking, that kind of doesn't sound like Christianity. That kind of doesn't sound like the way it's supposed to go. Maybe I don't know a lot of the law in the Old Testament, but it kind of seems like stealing and, and making idols is not quite the way that the God of the Bible wants to be worshipped. They actually have a picture here of, of what they did. So there we go. We have Micah and his son worshipping a really ugly uh, false idol right there. Okay, back to, to verse 7. So the story continues. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and to me and, and be to me a father and a priest. And I will give you 10 whole pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes, and you're living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, the young man, because his priest, uh, became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as priest. In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, for until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah, from Eshtaol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. Okay, so let me try to help you understand what's going on here. So a Levite was a person who was of the tribe of Levi, and those guys were especially the priests that, that, that God used here. So when Micah sees this random Levite that's supposed to be near the house of God, who's supposed to be near the tabernacle, we'll get to that later, who's actually just wandering, trying to find, uh, trying, trying to, yeah, find his own wealth or his own job, when Micah finds him, he goes, ooh, what's even better than a fake priest, than my son who's... I just ordained because I wanted to. What's even better than that is a Levite. So he says to the Levite, hey, come, be, be, my, be my priest, bless me, and, and help kind of run this, my own little like, mini tabernacle, my own little mini shrine here, and, and I'll pay you well. And this priest, this Levite, agrees. 
And Micah responds by saying this at the end of chapter 17. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Then chapter 18 shows up, and it seems like it's a, it's a different story, right? We are not with Micah. We're talking with a different tribe, the tribe of Dan. And it says that they don't have a place to live. And you might be thinking, oh, poor Dan. This poor, this poor tribe, they, they, they don't have a place. All the other tribes have a place to live, but this is the one tribe that kind of uh, got the short end of the stick. But if you remember, at the very beginning of our series, Judges 1 and 2, we see that God did give Dan a land. But they weren't obedient to God. They didn't drive out those people and, and, and take their land that God had given them. And so the reason that they're homeless, the reason that they're nomadic and looking for a place is not because they're innocent, but because that they're foolish. They're disobedient, and they're far from God. So they're looking for a place to live. They send out some spies. I'm going to kind of fast forward just a little bit here and summarize these, these next few verses. And so they send five spies to the city called Laish that is unsuspecting. They, they don't have uh, alliances with other cities. They're just sitting there kind of ripe for the taking. And so as these five spies go to check out the city of Laish to see if they can sack it and destroy it and, and take all their wealth and treasure and make it their own city, these five spies uh, go past Micah and his priest and say, oh, here's a priest. Let's, let's kind of talk to him and see if he can give us some good advice or ask, ask God on behalf of us if uh, our military conquest is going to work. And so they talk to him. He says yes. Then the spies return back uh, to the people of Dan, and they said, hey, this city's just ripe for the picking. Let's go. So then they send 500, 600 of their own warriors back to go conquer the city. And on their way, they pass again, pass again by Micah's place. And the five, the, these five spies tell their tribe, do you know what's in this guy's house? He's got some idols, and he's got a priest. He's got a good luck charm. He's got something that could probably benefit us as we're about to go to battle. So these five uh, initial spies go back into Micah's house. They take the idols, and they offer the priest a better offer. We pick it up in verse 19. And these spies, they said to the priest, keep quiet, put your hand over your mouth, and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man? or to be priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel. And the priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod and the household gods and the carved images and went along with the people. So Micah takes the better deal. He sees riches. He sees dollar signs. He sees more security. He sees more power. He sees more comfort, not faithfulness to God. And he goes with Dan. So they all leave. Micah finds out that they stole his gods and his priest. He chases after them. And then the, the tribe of Dan turns around and like, hey, we have 600 warriors. You're just a couple dozen people. So Micah gives up and goes home. And that's kind of the last that we hear about Micah. And then we continue in verse uh, 27. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him. And they came to Laish to a people quiet and unsuspecting and struck them with the edge of the sword, and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliver, deliverer, because it was far from Sidon. And they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belonged to Beth Rehob. 
Then they built the city, and they lived in it, and they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So that's how the story ends, right? It just ends with God's people worshiping false idols, which is crazy. I, I love how the author, the author's not like commenting and saying, and the Lord's anger burned against Dan. But he puts in these little things, he says, uh, and the people of Dan set up the carved images, these, these images that were made, these gods that were created by humans, which is just, he, did, he shows the ridiculousness of this. And then they worship these carved images, and he reminds the reader, as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So contrast that with God's true house, God's true tabernacle, God's true dwelling place. And we'll get back to that in just a minute. So that's our passage for today. We see this big problem again and again. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was complete anarchy and no one to stop them, no one to rule over them, no one to speak to them from God. And out of this big problem that they didn't have a king and that people were doing whatever they pleased, two big, two big things kind of play out of this, similar but different. The first one is we see uh, all different kinds of people, not just Dan, but also Micah and, and others. We see them worshiping false images. So, so they didn't know the real, full God. They knew a little bit about him. A few times they actually mentioned his name. But if they really knew God, if they really knew the Lord or, or Yahweh is his name in the Old Testament, if they really knew him, they wouldn't be worshiping him these, these ways. They wouldn't be trying to please him through, through these ways. And so they don't know the full God. They kind of remember, hey, I think our ancestors used to worship this God named Yahweh, but they really don't know the full God. They don't even know who he is anymore. They, they, they kind of use his name kind of, just a few times, and they think that they're kind of getting on his good side. But, what they're do but the way that they're trying to do this is just through great idolatry and sin, and we'll look at that in just a second. And so they use his name, but it kind of, as I was reading this, it kind of reminded me of the scene from The Princess Bride. You keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. So, so they're saying like, hey, we're worshiping Yahweh, but the reader's like, mm, I don't think you really know what that means. This is not how we worship God. And it's not like the way that they are doing this is, is just they're, they're, they know God really well, but they're kind of forgetting just a few like the smaller commandments. Like they're, they're worshiping God perfectly. They're understanding him perfectly, but they're kind of like just missing a, a few tiny little commandments. But actually, let's just look at the, at the, the Ten Commandments. Maybe many of you know these. So kind of the, the ten main rules that God gave Israel, again, just a few generations, just a few decades before our story takes place. And what do we see already in the first, in, in chapter 17, with Micah and his mother and, and others? Thou shalt not have uh, any other gods before me. Check. They uh, broke that one. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images or idols. Check. They break that one. Down to number five, honor thy father and mother. Micah definitely was not doing that. So they broke three of them. Keep going. Uh... Number eight, thou shalt not steal. That happened, check. 
Seven, thou shalt not bear false witness. You shouldn't lie. We see that happening in the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. That shall not be, be jealous. So we look, the way that, that Micah and his mother and his son, the way that they're trying to worship and please God, this God that they don't even know, is through like breaking six of the main commandments, which as readers, we should think, this is ridiculous. And this is how far people in Israel have fallen. It's like inviting a vegan friend over to celebrate their birthday and then cooking them a rare steak. Or like having, celebrating a friend's like uh, promotion at work, so you buy them a fur coat, but their job is that they work for PETA, right? So you have to know your audience, right? You have to know this person that you're trying to, to worship. And we see here, they don't even know God anymore. And we saw at the end of our passage too, it's not as if God was hiding. It's not as if God was, had not made himself known. So at the very end of 18, it said, this all happened while the house of God was at Shiloh. This all happened while there was a tabernacle. There was a place in Israel where God's spirit was dwelling. There was a way to worship God. There was a way to know God, to approach him, to understand him. But in our story today, they're choosing not to know him. But we do the same thing. So you may be thinking right now, what a bunch of idiots. What a bunch of morons. How could they do that? They were so close to God just a few generations ago. They saw God raise up all these judges week after week after week from our vantage point as we've been going through the book of Judges. What morons. Yet, we do the exact same thing. We don't know the full God. Whether that's consciously or unconsciously, whether you're a Christian or not, we all practically live like this at times. We don't fully know God. We, we're ignorant or choose not to believe different aspects of his character, his nature, his person, his, his attributes. And so we act as if God is like a boss. Chris uses this example all the time, and it's such a great one. We act as if, if I work really hard for God, then he'll be pleased with me. If I don't work really hard before God, I'm in trouble. Look out. I'm going to get fired. Right? But the Bible never speaks about God as if he is a boss like this. Yet, how often do we live like this? Or maybe we see God like a good luck charm, like they did in this story. You know, maybe if I wear a cross necklace, God will bless me. Maybe if there's a Bible in my car, in the glove compartment, I won't get in a car accident. Maybe if I recite a prayer in the morning, I'm going to have a good day. Or we also kind of view God as kind of like this, this Christian version, pseudo-Christian, false Christian version of karma. So like Micah in today's passage said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite priest. I have like a real priest this time, not just like a, a rip-off fake one that I got in the parking lot of Kmart. This is a real priest. So now God's going to bless me. But we do the exact same thing. Under the banner of kind of this false Christianity, whether, again, we might not have even been realizing that we're doing this, or maybe we do realize, but we say the same thing. We say things like, yeah, I know the Lord will bless me today or in this season of my life because, well, I went to church this week. Of course I'm going to be closer to God, and he's going to love me a little bit more, be a little more proud of me, be a little more impressed, protect me a little bit more, bless me a little bit more. I know that the Lord will prosper me because I gave money to the church this week. Or I posted about something good and important on social media. Or because I was kind to someone. Or because 
I served the poor because I didn't sin and I really wanted to. But I didn't sin. It was really hard, God, but be, be, be impressed with me. Bless my day even more. And again, or to be clear, all these things are great things. We should do these things. I'm not saying don't do them. But those are not the reason that we are accepted in God. Those are not the reasons that we are blessed and used for good in this world by God. Jesus is the reason that we are blessed. Jesus is the reason that, that Christians have prosperity and hope. So unlike what Micah said, Christians can say this. If you are in Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, this is what you can say. This is the confidence that you can have. I know the Lord will prosper me spiritually and eternally because I am in Christ. I am a co-heir with Jesus and I am a promised eternal life with him in paradise. So even if earthly physical prosperity never comes, and it might or it might not, but even if it doesn't come in this life, it's promised to me through Christ for eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. Christians, we can be confident of that. That's the Christian version. That top version, what Micah said, is, is just karma. It's just, it's just heresy. It's, it's false religion. But that was good news, but I said no good news to the end. So let's keep, let's go back to our passage again. So it wasn't just that the people of Israel didn't know God fully, as if God were hiding or as if, if they just had a little more information, a little more education, a little better leadership, then they would have worshipped truly and they would have been good. And, but that's not the case. It wasn't that they just didn't know him fully, but it was also intentional deliberate, self-focused, sinful, and prideful. And it was based on their personal greed, their personal gain, and their personal preference. They didn't worship God truly and fully or correctly so that they could get wealth and power and comfort and influence and significance and land and possession. So in today's passage, all of our characters, we see that they have this, this religion of personal preference. They're not worshiping God the way that he has revealed himself, but they're worshiping him how they want to, what, what's going to get them the most out of this, this relationship. So not only are they not knowing God fully, but they're choosing to not know God fully. They're choosing some of his aspects and, and attributes and parts of his character and and intentionally, neglecting others for their own personal gain. And they do this by, by worshiping God through, worshiping God through worshiping these idols, these idols that they have created, instead of choosing to submit to God and who he reveals himself. So idolatry is essentially, worshiping idols is essentially finding and seeing God on our own terms, which is like works. So saying, God, you look like this. This is how I'm going to worship you. If, if you have a certain attribute that I don't like, I'm not going to put it in the idol. And it's all on my own self. It's, it's my own works because I either bought this idol or I created this idol myself. And through works, that's how I'm getting to God. Whereas true worship is letting God reveal himself to us. It's letting God approach us. Letting God self-disclose and say, hey, you were not looking for me. You were not pursuing me. You didn't know me, but, but, but I found you. I revealed myself to you. I wanted to adopt you 
into my family. I wanted to make you my friend, which is grace. And we see the tribe of Dan, we see Micah, we see Micah's mother, all of them doing the same thing. They, they pick certain aspects of God's character that are going to bless them, and they neglect, intentionally neglect, others that will be a pain. So the tribe of Dan didn't want to trust God at the beginning of Judges to go uh, defeat a mighty army in this land that God said that they were going to give him. They didn't want to trust that God, but they're sure happy to trust this fake little idol that said, yeah, go attack this, this unprotected, thriving, wealthy, unsuspecting city. They're really happy to trust in that God because that God said, you're going to get wealthy and have victory and it's going to be easy. Micah wanted to worship a God who resembled the Lord, but not just that, but also one that would give him great power and great prosperity and wealth and control. Micah's mother didn't want to worship uh, the, the true God in a righteous way, but she just wanted to worship something that would get this curse off of her son after doing something foolish herself. But again, it's not just these characters are morons or these characters are evil, right? In this story, they are a microcosm, an example of all of humanity, of ourselves as well. Left to our own sin, we pick and choose aspects of God we like or that are going to benefit us, and we disregard others. So how do we do this? Again, we do this all the time by saying things like, again, consciously or unconsciously. We, some of this we just do because we're sinful and don't even quite realize we're doing it. Or maybe we intentionally say this. But we say things like, I can't believe in a God who, and then fill in the blank with something the Bible does say. But we just can't believe in a God who. A few examples. I can't believe in a God who brings judgment, wrath, and punishment. Right? So I love the part about Jesus that he's all about community and friendship and forgiveness and love. But I can't believe in a God who would also be about judgment and wrath and punishment. And so if that's the case, we end up worshiping this false image, an image of like a, like a hippie Jesus, right? One that's only about love and forgiveness, but not also about judgment and wrath and punishment. Or maybe we say, I just can't worship a God who would withhold anything from me, right? So I know God's good. That's one of his characteristics. So if he's good, he must just be like my parents and my grandparents that give me whatever I want. I can't believe in a God who would ever say no to me. And so if we're pitting some of his attributes against some others, we worship an idol that looks like this, a, a Jesus who's more like a genie than the God of the Bible. Or we say, I could never worship a God that would disagree with me. Because I'm brilliant. I, I'm really woke. I'm really, really enlightened here. And when we do that, we, we worship a God that looks just like us. A God that's, that's made, or a, yeah, a, an idol, a, a false God that's made in our own image. Or maybe other ways we, we say something like this. God is loving, but he could never really defeat my sin. He's not that powerful. So I believe that God is loving, but I don't believe that God is powerful, that he really can defeat my sin. Or he might say, yes, God does forgive, so I believe that attribute of him, but my past and my actions and my sins, they're just too bad for him to forgive. So I agree that he's forgiving, but he just can't really do that in my life. 
And all of this leads to making gods, false gods, that never contradict us or never say that we're wrong, right? How convenient is that? Tim Keller, in his commentary on Judges, writes about this. He says, but when we simply ignore the parts of God we don't like, it means we don't have a God that can ever contradict our deepest desires or say no to us. We never wrestle with him. We never let him make demands on us. We can end up, wor- we can end up wor- worshiping a much more comfortable God, but also a non-existent one. So we have to ask ourselves this question. Are we worshiping a God that we've just made up? Are we truly worshiping him the way that he has self-revealed himself? Or are we just picking and choosing like a, like a divine buffet about what attributes, what parts of his character we like and which ones we don't like? And I actually withheld a few verses from our story today. You think it's depressing and hopeless and, and uh, dark, but there's one more final twist in our story and one more warning for us as well. I skipped over one verse at the very end. And the people of Dan set up the carved images for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was in Shiloh. So for two chapters... This story goes on and on, saying that there's this one guy that's supposed to know God, that's supposed to know the Lord, but actually leads Micah and his family and then a whole tribe of Israel into damnable sin by worshiping false gods. And he's unnamed. And at the very end of this story, the author says, and guess who this guy is? Guess who the, the, maybe the biggest villain here in this story, the guy that, that misleads people into damnable sin into worshiping false, false gods in order to get incredibly rich and wealthy and prosperous. Guess who this guy is? Is he an evil Canaanite? Is he an evil Philistine, an, an evil Egyptian that's kind of like a spy that snuck in in order to like ruin Israel from the inside? No. He's Moses' grandson, Right? You don't, even if you don't know much about the Bible, you probably know Moses. Moses was the guy that God used to rescue God's people out of slavery. That, that whole thing I showed you of God showing up again and, and again in miraculous ways, God used Moses as the leader to do that. If there ever was a hero, it was this guy. If there ever was someone who knew God, who spoke to God, who saw the most miraculous things ever, it was this guy. And yet, his grandson is the one that has forgotten God. His grandson is the one who has chosen to lead hundreds and thousands of people away from the true God and into idol worship. No one is related to God through a family tree. Moses' grandson is the priest that knows nothing of the true God. How crazy is that? And this is why we preach the gospel over and over and over again here at Hiawatha Church. It's not just because it's the answer to all of our problems, which it is, but it's also because we forget so easily. And we forget how forgetful we are. And as you read the Bible, as we read through the book of Judges, we saw the same thing every single week. They forget about God and his salvation. They forget about their identity, who they are in relationship to their God, and they fall into sin. 
And it happens again and again. Read the whole Bible. That's like the story again and again and again. God's people forget. And God says, don't forget. Take communion over and over and over again because you're going to forget. And so that is why at Hiawatha Church, we're, we're a cover band that plays only one song. Over and over again, we play the gospel. And we are, myself included, we are naive to think that we are any different than every single character in the Bible, than everyone who has lived that just forgets about the gospel, forgets about our salvation. So it's our job to pass this on to others, especially if you're a parent and if you have children today. Just like Moses needed to pass on these truths to his, to his children and to his grandchildren, we're called to do that as well. So to be real clear, though, ultimately your child's salvation, your child's relationship with Jesus Christ is up to them. Ultimately, they are responsible for that. If they don't choose to repent and to believe, that, that is ultimately on them. And at the same time, we have an incredibly high calling as parents to disciple our children, to teach them the gospel over and over and over again, to get to disciple and discipline our children so that they would believe the same God that we believe in. And for some of you, that might be really scary. You might be a newer believer, or maybe you, you didn't have parents that did this, or you're like, hey, I don't even know the Bible. How am I supposed to teach my inquisitive son or daughter that asked me all these great questions? So if it is scary and daunting, if, if the Bible's saying and your pastor's saying, it's important, parents, to teach your kids about Jesus, if that's terrifying to you, just start by reading the Bible with them. Open up the, their children's Bible. Buy them a children's Bible. We have a few through, through these doors. They're sale for 10 bucks. Just take one. If, if you don't have 10 bucks, just read the Bible with your kids. Don't be ashamed of that. I've, I've learned a ton about how to understand the Bible through reading books like the Jesus Storybook Bible and others. So read the Bible with them. Teach them what you already know, even if you don't know that much. Learn together with your children. Make gathering with your church a priority. Show your children how even though we're tired and it's a beautiful day outside, it's even more important to come to church together on Sunday or to youth group or to kids ministry or, or whatever it might uh, be. Pray together with your kids. Apologize to your kids. Talk with them. Ask them what's going on in their life. And just know that Hiawatha Church is behind you. We support you. We, we put lots of time and energy and resources into our kids' program on, on Sunday mornings. We want to train you as, as parents and as adults and as non-parents that, that teach our kids as well or are going to interact with our kids. We want to train you well so you know the gospel so that that can then, uh, you can teach and, and model that to our kids. And so at the same time, we want to hold up this, this high responsibility of parents to, to teach their kids about the gospel and to help their kids understand the Bible. And at the same time, we have freedom to know that God's the one who saves, that you can be an almost perfect parent and your kid can, can still be selfish and, and self-focused and, and not want to uh, trust in Christ. Or you can fail all the time, right? Raise your hand. If, no, don't raise your hand. If that's you, you can fail all the time with parenting. Yet still be confident that God is a gracious, loving God and that your horrible parenting can't screw your kid up so much that they, that they won't know and see Jesus. So hold those two at the same time. It's, it's, it's a tough balance. It's, it's a tough tension, but we need to have both of those. We've said this before in this sermon series, but it's, it's just pertinent right here in this passage. One generation knows the gospel, 
The next generation assumes it. So if that first generation is not explicitly teaching the gospel over and over and over again, the next generation would just assume it, and the third generation loses it. It's true here with Moses, right? I'm sure his, his, Moses' son knew all about God's salvation and all the th- mighty things that God did. But he must have assumed it, and then by the third generation, it was lost. So when our story ends today, at the end of Judges 17 and 18, this is what has happened in Israel. They've forgotten the one true God. And what they do remember, they choose to dismiss for their own greed, for their own covetousness. The people of God in just a few generations are nearly indistinguishable from the pagan nations that are surrounding them. And that's where our story ends. The bad guys are winning. The powerful are oppressing the weak. Those that, the, the one guy that's supposed to know better, that's supposed to know God, is leading everyone else into greed and violence and bloodshed and idolatry. And they barely even remember their God. They barely even remember his name, how to approach him, how to know him, how to worship him. And it is in this hopeless darkness that Judges 18 ends. There's no next verse that says, but, or, or God shows up. Or he sends a new judge. No, there's no repentance at the end of Judges 18. No crying out for help. No rescue. No judge that's coming to, to defeat the enemies. No redemption. No deliverance. Evil wins. Injustice reigns. Violence and power rule. And idolatry is the new way of life. Let's pray. Just kidding. We're not going to end with that down there. I told you, there's some hope. There's a little bit of hope, but we have, to, we have to leave judges. And just like Jan Wilkins said, the good news is not good unless we have bad news first. The gospel is not nearly as beautiful and powerful and attractive until we see this is where humanity goes. Apart from God, humanity runs towards Judges 17 and 18. Not you, Chris. This is us. Judges 17 and 18. That's naturally what we do. This pushes the story forward. It shows us that there has to be a different answer, that there has to be a different solution. So if our big problem was there's no king, people aren't worshiping their God, they don't have a king that's telling them to do that or what to do, and there's complete anarchy. Everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. And now in Christ, now this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, there's a solution. Now we can. We actually can know God truly and fully. And the way we do so is through his son, Jesus Christ. And guess what? He also happens to be a priest and a king. Right? What was missing in Judges 17 and 18? A king and a real priest. Jesus is also those. So no longer do we have to search and wonder, how do I approach God? Who is he? What is he like? How does he feel about me? How do I fix the problem? How do I, how do I get right with him? No longer do we have to ask any of those questions or, or just wonder, who is God? Wonder what his character is like. Just like God made himself known in the time of Judges through the tabernacle, okay, through God's presence saying, this is the way you worship me. This is how you know me. This is how you come near me. Just like that, we have even a better version now in Christ. We're offered the same thing through Jesus. In Jesus, all these questions and uncertainties are answered and they're made clear. We can know God. We can know who he is and we can be in relationship with him through Jesus Christ. 
And not only can we know God fully, and not only can we know God truly through his son, but he's also the great solution that we need. And not just the great solution for the people in Judges 17 and 18, but the great solution for all of humanity and all of human history. Jesus is the true king, the king that we need. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus is called a king. And not just a king, but the king. He's the king of all the other kings. He's the authority above all the other authorities. He's the ruler that rules all the rulers. And he's a king who will give us what is right outside of us. So our problem in our story today is they were trying to figure out what was right and wrong from the inside, making it up themselves. Jesus is a true king that will solve the problem that we saw in in the book of Judges. He shows up and gives us a rightness, a trueness, a goodness that comes not from ourselves, but that comes from him, that comes from something outside of ourselves. Jesus, at his trial, another king-like character, Pilate, so as Jesus is bloody and, and chained up, this other king comes to him and says, are you a king? And just listen to Jesus' response. It's great. Uh, Therefore Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Kind of as like a question. And Jesus responds like this, well, you said it. You're the one that said it. Jesus answers, you say it correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. So this is what Jesus' kingship looks like. This is what his mission looks like. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Right? So it solves this problem of not knowing truth, not knowing what is right that we see back in Judges 17 and 18. But not only that, what is truth? What's what's Jesus talking about here? I have come into the world to tell everyone about the truth. What is the truth? Jesus also in the book of John says, I am the truth. He says that he is the truth. He came into this world to testify about himself as king and savior. John 14, 6 He says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The reason that we, the the way that we get to God is through the truth. The way that we get to God is through his son, Jesus Christ. And in 1 John 5.20 it says, And we know that the Son of God, we know that Jesus has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is the ultimate king that we need and that we long for. He is powerful and a just king who protects, who provides, who cares for us, and who fights our enemies. And he gives us truth and righteousness that comes not from ourselves, not from within, but from him. He gives us himself. He gives us truth. He gives us righteousness. He gives us himself. Jesus is the true and great humanity, sorry, the true and great king that humanity needs. But Jesus is not only the solution there, he's also the great high priest as well. He's the ultimate high priest fulfilling Israel's need for a true and real priest. So we need, just like in our story today and and just humanity's need in general, we need a priest. We need a person who is a mediator between us and God. We need someone who can bring us close to God. We need someone who can speak to us from God, all of which the answer is Jesus Christ as well. Jesus is a true and better high priest. 
Hebrews 2 calls him a merciful and faithful high priest who serves God on our behalf. And how does our, our, how does our priest bring us to God? How is he so much better than Micah's priest? 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator, one high priest, between God and men, and that is the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So that is how we are brought near God. That is how he is a great high priest who rescues us and brings us close to God. It is through his death as a ransom for us. So much better than an Old Testament priest that just brings some temporal salvation from enemy, some, some temporal closeness to God through some purification laws around the tabernacle. But Jesus brings a, an eternal and a true and a full connection and, and, and return to God. So a few things as we leave today. Know God fully and truly, unlike our characters today. Know God fully and truly through his word, through the Bible. God has spoken. He's made it clear. He wants you to know who he is. He doesn't want it to be veiled. He doesn't want it to be confusing. He wants you to know his attributes, his character, his love for you. And he's spoken to us through, his Bible, through the Bible, through his word. So know God fully and truly through his word. And secondly, know God fully and truly through his word. Jesus Christ in the New Testament, his son is called the word of God. Colossians 1 says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like? You want to know who he is? Look at his son. John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, if you see me, you see God the Father. So know God fully and truly through his word, through the Bible, and especially looking at Jesus Christ, his son. And then finally, know, whether, you, whether you're believing it or not, or whether you're actively believing it or not, Jesus is the king. He's the resurrected, ruling king. So submit to that, him as our king, and and. Thank God for him being such a great provider, protector, enemy slayer, the king that we need. And Jesus, he's also the high priest. He is the way to God. He is the only way to God, to forgiveness, to eternal life, to an identity, to a closeness with God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for such a dark passage that forces us to look to something else, forces us to look ahead to a different solution that does not come in the book of Judges. So God, thank you that you are the true and greater king and high priest and that we can uh, know you and come close to you through, through your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand as we respond together with one final song.